mist to mist, drops to drops. For water thou art, and unto water thou shalt return. Kaman Kojuri. Welcome. This is Preston Floyd for episode two of the Warfare Advancement and Revisionism podcast. Um, I'm recording this directly after the first episode, so I don't have any feedback to go over. Um, however, upon uploading and realizing, um, you know, listening back before um, it went live, I realized that I forgot to mention the name of the site uh, in Morocco where those oldest human fossils were found. Um, I know I mentioned the Azvi province or Safi province, but the actual location is known as Jebel Irhud. So, um, that was one thing I know I missed. So, and I'm sure I'll think of more later. Um, and if you do have anything to point out, please let me know. But instead, let's go ahead and get started. So, last time we went into a brief explanation of the oldest found fossils of Homo sapiens and our current estimates of age based on DNA, as well as we began to occupy different parts of the world. We're going to continue from there. One important thing I need to reiterate is that these DNA tests are tracking large populations from a macro level, and this doesn't mean that these groups didn't have interaction and interbreeding with each other after splits. It just means it was comparatively limited. Also, uh, mitochondrial Eve, she was the last common female ancestor we all share, uh, but she is not the only female from that time that has descendants living today. Uh, it should also be clear, uh, it is possible that her descendants moved into areas without, uh, with other nearby Homo sapiens and mated with them instead of moving into the region and populating it with just the arriving group. Now that said, we should theorize on what humans were like at this time. Uh, this split in our geographic locations did not change our behavior or appearance radically from one another. Um, we were all still the same uh, Homo sapien no matter where we were, at least at this point in time. <clears throat> now physically, we had slightly larger, less globular heads. Uh, we all would have had dark black skin as it was more effective probably from protecting us from the harsh sunlight we would deal with around the equator and tropics. Um, we would also have been hairier in general. Um, we would have had little to no body fat just due to our lifestyle. Um, of course all the strenuous activity needed to survive and um, you know it's probable that you know food was not always abundant. <clears throat> We would probably have started out shorter than we are today in general, um, but that's not going to be static for us for our entire history, especially as we begin to be hunter-gatherers. Um, they were actually fairly physically um, taller than what you would see when, you, when we began um, agriculture, but we get into more of that later. <clears throat> as for other primates like chimps and gorillas, we were not nearly as strong as them, of course, just like today, but we are taller, and that would have been true in the past. <laughs> Excuse me. Intellectually speaking, we were still developing, but we weren't dumb by any stretch. Um, we probably wouldn't have been quite as advanced as the Neanderthals or Denisovans in our early days, but we weren't far behind, and we continued to develop very quickly. Uh, remember, Jerub. Jebel Irhud shows evidence of us controlling fire very early in our history, and Neanderthals were probably using fire, fire daily at this point uh, for cooking and all that kind of stuff. 
Now, I kind of want to go over kind of some theories of what we would have been like at this time. Uh, and to do that, I kind of want to start with an individual and what they would expect from life. Um, obviously, these days, uh, childbirth is not super dangerous. It, of course, always has risks. Um, but it would be nothing compared to what we would deal with in those days. And it's not just dangerous, of course, for the baby, but for the mother as well. There's also the possibility uh, that even if you live through the birthing process, um, that your group that you are in could not afford to devote either the resources or the time to, you, you know, to the individual being born, and it would either have to kill them or abandon them. Um, if you survive through that, and if your family could keep you, um, this would also be the most dangerous time of an already dangerous life. Um, so you're essentially moving out of the frying pan and into the fire. Uh, much like today, they were entirely dependent on others to survive. Um, we then as now don't leave the womb able to crawl, much less walk. So they would have been easy prey for a large number of predators. Uh, they would have had to stay extremely close to their mother or other nursing females in their group for the, probably the first five years of their life. Um, they would have been weaned at that point, um, probably a couple of years younger than five, but you know, definitely no later than five. After that, they would be very close uh, physically, if nothing else, to their mothers and other caretakers, probably uh, elders or those you know doing less strenuous activities, and probably older siblings. Um, but they would also be able to kind of walk at that point and kind of, you know, have a little bit more uh, mobility and freedom to kind of explore their surroundings, um, wherever that would be, you know, wherever their groups were living. They would also learn skills from watching older members of their families. Uh, they would do this by mimicking, obviously, actions they had seen their elders do. And they wouldn't understand that. Of course, it's the same way, you know, you have a toddler might pick up a phone and talk into it or try typing into a keyboard or something. Then they would continue to age. And of course, once um, once they got older, they would start to learn more skills uh, directly from their family members. Um, and now they'd be able to understand probably the simple reasons um, for the actions. Um, we probably weren't thinking too deeply and philosophically yet. Um, so this reason was for doing everything that they did was simple. It was survival. Now, by the time they were 15, they were probably considered an adult. Um, we don't have any evidence that suggests, um, you know, that they divided labor based on sex at this point in our history. Um, of course, I can't imagine any mothers, you know, holding helpless children. Um, doing much hunting, um, so they'd probably be gathering, creating tools, or maybe providing extra set of eyes to the group, maybe watching for prey or predators, or allowing women or elders um, with older children to perform more dangerous or intensive tasks. And counting out early deaths in childhood and infancy, once you reach 15, you could probably expect to live to see another 30 ish years maximum um, and I would be stunned if you had anyone alive at any point past 50. Now obviously um, any individual human at this time to survive even half that time would have to cooperate with you know other humans or other homo sapiens. Um, 
and they would need the same two fundamentals for survival that we need today food and water uh, food is not relatively hard for us to come by we're omnivores and we have a very large menu uh, that we can choose from to eat um, the issue comes into whether we're getting enough of every type of nutrient we ideally need um, water of course while making up you know you know, most of the world's surface is not all drinkable, of course. So the key to a basic life then is to be somewhere reasonably close to both food and drinkable water. That said, you probably don't need to be right beside the water for longer than you need to. Um, that's where predators would be as well. They need water the same as you do. And we are not at the top of the food chain at this point. We're in the middle of it at best. And if, what about your prey? You're an omnivore, so you can get by with just plants, but you enjoy meat, and it's gotta be easy for you to find meat near water as well. How do you balance these factors to survive on a daily basis? Well, uh, you know, of course, groups would have to travel together to and from any kind of source of water. Um, you might make the journey with your entire family, or your troop may go in smaller groups as you travel each group foraging for food or materials you know as they go um, I imagine they would have to collect stone wood stuff for bedding uh, anything to make themselves more comfortable and all this time you would have to be watching keeping an eye open for dangers or opportunities for food and once you reach your destination you would of course water yourselves and your your friends would watch your back and you would watch your groups back in turn after everyone had had their fill, they would continue to search for food opportunities as groups, but probably always within shouting distance and always on the lookout for dangers. Uh, of course, uh, we're not nocturnal, we can't see in the dark, so eventually the sun would start to set and you would need to make some type of camp or you know, find somewhere that would be safe for you all to rest as a group. Uh, you'd probably go back to the same site for a few nights but eventually, you know, food would be less and less readily available. Um, if not harder to come by, harder to obtain, or, you know, there'd be more competition for it. And eventually you would move on to a new place. Um, and of course, as I said, we're not nocturnal, so at night you can't see all that well, even then, and you might have a fire every now and then to protect your group. Now, just as we have no evidence for gender-based labor, we also have no evidence of any kind of social hierarchy. Did they have a single leader? Did that leader have supreme power? Was leadership split between roles at different times? Was our leadership the same as like a chimpanzee or a gorilla troop today? I have no idea. And I don't think obviously anyone has any firm idea. They just base it off what they know, you know about different groups today. Um, I would say it's probably dependent on the composition of the group, though. I imagine most of these groups would be very small, closely related, led by the oldest, healthiest family members. Um, that leads to another question. How did other groups interact with each other? Did we immediately start trying to kill other groups of Homo sapiens we ran into? Uh, no, I don't think so. And I think most likely you would have very tense standoffs with posturing and bravura if you ran into one another in an area that one of the two groups, two groups felt protective of. Um, if they met during travels or at locations that weren't useful or vital to either group, I think you may have had a kind of cautious, excited curiosity. 
This may have led groups traveling together for a short group, of, a short period of time, or maybe have seen complete mergers of different groups. Um, this might be a place to find unrelated partners for offspring or less related offspring at least. Um, our initial group sizes wouldn't be huge. Um, I think anywhere between one to three dozen individuals. And depending on the availability of resources of a given area, there could be somewhere between 10 to 50 of those groups. Um, and that would be relatively close to keep a healthy breeding population. Or at least that's kind of the mean of what I've read. Um, and that's true for us and Neanderthals and Denisovans. Um, also the, the estimate for the initial breeding Homo sapien population was probably somewhere between three to 12,000 individuals. Uh, now going on to our toolkit, uh, our tools during this time frame would be wood, bone, stone, and fire. Uh, wooden sticks and uncut stones would be used to pierce and smash food uh, to get through tough skins on things like melons and gourds. Fired and hardened tips of wood branches would be used as kind of rudimentary spears to hunt and defend against other animals. Though if they had time and resources, I imagine they would prefer to chip out sharper stone heads. Um, in addition um, to those stone tips, uh, stone hand axes would be chipped out and sharpened for chopping not only branches from trees, but skin, meat, um, and they could also be used as crude throwing weapons. Um, you know, it's a short effective distance, um, but if you, you know, obviously you hit some of the stone, it's going to hurt them, but if you were lucky enough to get that sharp blade, uh, you know, you could really injure them. Um, the way stone items were chipped from larger stones is that the shape, the kind of desired shape was made into the body of a, your core stone. And then the base of that stone, um, that was prepared was bashed against the ground or another rock to knock the shape loose. Uh, so you could actually probably get a few similarly shaped items from one larger core stone. Now bones are easier to turn into certain items uh, than stone is, um, at least in terms of time and effort. Um, now the overall shape can't be changed in the same way as stone, but it is easier to sharpen or create points uh, on them without nearly as much accidental damage to your, um, I guess, your starting item. And while not as hard as stone, it is harder than most woods. Um, plus it's a resource you would gain from a source of food, so it's probably more efficient than stone, like you finish your meal and now you have all these extra tools. Um, and of course fire, you know, it. It's useful for a range of things that would be important. Warmth, light, cooking, uh, defense. Most animals are naturally afraid of fire. You know, they, they won't get anywhere near it. I think some bears aren't, oddly enough. And of course, you know, reptiles would probably be drawn to the heat, but you know, most other mammals, anything like that would be scared away from it. <clears throat> so this is a very simple toolkit, but it's also incredibly effective for helping us meet our needs. Uh, for food and it is made up of extremely complementary pieces that can all be used to enhance each other in a lot of ways and it was available to us as we began to populate Africa. 
And that's going to bring us back to the branching family tree of Homo sapiens. As we covered last time, the first split uh, saw a portion of our species occupy and later dominate the south of the African continent, and the other portion would later expand into and dominate the rest of Africa and in the world. Uh, so the latter group would split again somewhere between 22,000 and 190,000 years ago. This branch would go into Central Africa's rainforests, and some of their descendants would go on to become the ancestors of most of that region's uh, pygmies. Um, but not all. It, there's not necessarily a genetic reason why pygmies exist. There is a lot of thought it's environmental. Um, so they're not all related to, all, not all pygmies are related to this initial group, um, but most are from what I understand. They would also, uh, this Central African group would also go on to mix with the next major split in our family tree. The Southern group uh, would split into two groups somewhere between 190 to 140,000 years ago. One part of this split would occupy more of the north and west of southern Africa, and then the majority of the south and east um, of that region would be occupied by the other group. And now there is, of course, going to be interbreeding between these three groups, um, though. Uh, these three are going to be fairly isolated from the rest of Homo sapiens for quite a while after this. Um, I should also note that the humans who occupied southern Africa would go on to have probably the largest population uh, until the agricultural revolution. Uh, it probably is also the most stable uh, region as well, just in terms of, you know, there's not a dramatic shift um, in numbers of births or deaths. It's, it's going to be fairly constant. Um, for quite a while. Um, their descendants, you know, who still occupy those regions to this day show far fewer population bottlenecks in genetic studies. So that basically what that means is that they dealt with less probably intergroup conflicts, wars, uh, disease, famine, just on, just as a whole. Um, and we'll get back to that another day when we, you know, when we go in a little bit more depth on some of these groups. As for what happened to the greater African group after the central group split from them, um, somewhere between 150 to 100,000 years ago, there was another surprise, surprise division in the family tree. Now this one, I think there's less of an apparent geographic division here. As we know, this split would end with one group's descendants uh, ending up mostly living in West Africa along the coast of the Mediterranean, the Atlantic. But I think it's probable that while the Sahara was green, they probably occupied a much larger area, probably all of the, the Sahara while it was still, you know, a savanna with those shallow lakes and rivers and that kind of stuff. And then they would be forced into living in more, those more cramped confines in the West after the Sahara went through its last desert, desertification process. <clears throat> now, the final group uh, that would kind of split out of uh, what remained um, or what continued to occupy Eastern Africa. Um, this split occurred somewhere between 125,000 to 80,000 years ago. And this group would be the major force that would lead to our explosive occupation of the rest of the world. Um, but we're going to go into uh, more in depth on that later. Um, since we've 
covered kind of in the round of when we spread into Africa and what we lived like during our initial appearance. I think this is probably a good place to stop for this episode. Next time, I'm going to get a little bit more into how our toolkit developed from what we had in this episode. I'm also going to go into more specific threats that we were facing uh, initially. And we're probably going to get uh, also more in-depth on kind of the environment that we had to deal with uh, at that time. Because as I laid out in that first episode... Uh, Africa, still very similar, but there are some differences, and we're going to get into some of those differences next time. Uh, that being said, I hope you enjoyed. Um, I haven't, again, gotten any feedback because this is me recording this episode right after I recorded the first one. So um, if you do have anything from either the first episode or this episode, please, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, the podcast email is um, it's war ad rev pod at gmail.com. That's W A R A D R E V P O D. Uh, you can also, I think, reach me directly through um, the RSS feed, or I think Spotify allows direct messaging too. But um, regardless, uh, thank you for listening, and I hope to hear from you in the future, and I hope you listen next time. Goodbye.